0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on
1: Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for being with us and letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. Hope you're safe and well. Here's what we'll be talking about today. A new Waters of the U.S. rule. That's been a long time coming. We're going to talk about it with Don Parrish with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Ongoing battle over small refinery exemptions and EPA looking at considering 52 retroactive waivers. We'll talk about that with Brian Jennings of the American Coalition for Ethanol. And we'll also be talking with the president and CEO of the Farm Credit Council about a program to help farmers deal with stress, and we know there's a lot of that in agriculture today. So all that coming up on today's program, but we're going to start it off with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, good to talk with you. It's ag in the courtroom, as I call it, lots of things happening uh, legally. Let's let's start with uh, a federal judge reaffirming an earlier decision that the state of California cannot require a cancer warning label on products such as Roundup. Uh, wow, we see all these commercials about Roundup and, and uh, lo- you know, how to get a legal uh, uh, representation and, and fight things in, in court. But here are the judge is saying, again, you can't have a cancer warning label on the product.
2: Yeah, you know, Mike, it's very interesting because we've seen this ongoing battle, uh, you know, in California, the state of California has made many attempts uh, to to kind of, Put a stop to a lot of these ag chemicals in many respects. And this state law out there, uh, you know, they've been attempting to label products that contain uh, the glyphosate and uh, the round, you know, in Roundup, and that it causes cancer, et cetera. Uh, these these kinds of attempts are probably going to continue, um, you know, on down the road. But it definitely, uh, it's definitely a good thing for agriculture, at least in this situation, because. Uh, you know, they, we really need that product out there and, uh, you know, it's, it's been an ongoing battle when it comes to, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the court cases that have played out, um, you know, we're getting closer and closer reportedly to a settlement and bears, uh, coming close to making a settlement. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's never a dull moment, but I do think that this particular ruling out in California is definitely uh, a good thing.
1: Meanwhile, on the Dicamba front, uh, the Ninth Circuit upheld EPA's decision and ruling that the, those existing stocks could be used of Dicamba. But that legal battle is not over either.
2: Oh, no, definitely not. And I think, uh, you know, we're going to continue to see uh, quite a bit of things play out in court. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting part of this is that, uh, you know, a lot was raised, a lot of, uh, a lot of controversy was raised when EPA decided, uh, to allow the use of current stocks of dicamba, but this is really nothing new for the agency. They've, uh, uh, When it comes to many chemicals that have, that have been uh, struck down by courts, uh, it's basically the same procedure, although, you know, obviously there's been a, a very large spotlight on dicamba and the damage that it's caused, uh, you know, and EPA's actions on it, and so it would, it would come, you know, bear to reason that uh, EPA was going to face some pushback on that, but Uh, At least on this front, you know, the EPA seems pretty consistent in how it's uh, how it's dealt with dicamba.
1: Let's move to waters of the U.S. We have the new rule now because late last week, a federal judge in San Francisco denied a request to block the new rule.
2: Yeah, you know, and it's uh, it's interesting because these cases continue to expand. They continue to pop up across the country. Uh, We also had a judge in Colorado uh, that has stated that has uh, granted the preliminary injunction against the rule in the state of Colorado. Uh, I don't know how long that case is going to play out. Even the judge and his ruling in that, in that case uh, wasn't quite clear as to why Colorado had asked for the preliminary injunction, so it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see if that actually holds up for very long. But definitely in California, a uh, very similar request out there by the state of California to issue an injunction was, was rejected. Uh, so at least now we're starting off uh, with this new rule with just one state at the moment that's not going to enforce the, the rule. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, this is very similar, very reminiscent of what happened in 2015 with the WOTUS with the rule back then. Uh, we had a number of cases pop up and a long legal battle ensued, uh, and I, I really think this is probably going to continue on a couple other cases uh, across the country that are still playing out it could probably have uh, larger long-term effects on the rule.
1: Well, let's turn to trade. Peter Navarro got it, uh, everyone, including the markets, all worked up overnight, basically saying that where it sounded like he said the China deal is off, but, uh, of course, the administration, the, even the president has said, no, that's not the case, it is still on. But it sure got people's attention and got things, uh, uh, <laughs> it got people worked up because everyone's kind of suspicious of it anyway, you know, that it could be happening. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, it's really kind of an unfortunate thing. You would hope within the administration that the message would be consistent. Uh, but, you know, we're at a time now where the market's paying extremely close attention to China. Of course, that's kind of always been the case. Uh, but to have that kind of statement being made uh, from the administration was really some, some bad timing. I think, uh, you know, we're seeing some signs. China is stepping up some of its buying, and uh, there's really no reason to suspect that, uh, the trade deal is off. You know, the fact that the president came out immediately and said, no, that's not the case. I, I think that's a pretty good sign. Um, although you really, you really kind of wonder what happened along the way there, the communication lines must've got a little off, off target, but, uh, yeah, we just continue to watch and hope and see where it all goes.
1: And, um, a small refinery exemption battle, uh, waivers to the RFS, uh, that continues. Yeah. EPA even even looking at these 52 requests retroactively, I mean, this has big political implications in an election year.
2: Absolutely does, Mike. And, you know, you look back on this entire battle, uh, I mean, the, the, the industrial industry has already won a court case that seemed pretty significant, you know, in the Tenth Circuit. And, and here we wait for EPA to to take some action on the program and instead of hearing anything, any action to be taken, we hear more, more of these waivers. And, you know, and the thing about it is it was kind of snuck in on the, uh, on the agency dashboard, the RFS dashboard, where you can look and see, you know, the number of pending requests and that sort of thing. Uh, it came with no fanfare, no press announcement, no explanation, no nothing. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's a lot of waivers, you know, there's a potential there for a couple billions of gallons, uh, being waived and, uh, I suspect that, you know, depending on what EPA does, we're going to see a lot more court action on this. And you're right, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how this plays with the election here in uh, rural America.
1: Yeah, the administration has tried to, you know, walk the middle ground on this, try to appease both sides. For years now it hasn't worked very well yeah. it's all kind of coming to a head here in an election year so we'll see what happens Todd always good to talk with you I almost feel like uh, we need to get a lawyer in here with us uh, anymore uh, to talk <laughs> about the ag news right
2: yeah that would be helpful <laughs>
1: uh, it, it, and you as a farmer you feel like you need your lawyer in your tractor cab or combine cab or on the spray rig just <laughs> to know make sure you're doing everything Absolutely. according to whatever the the latest is on that all right thanks Todd take care we'll yeah. talk to you soon You too, thank you. DTN reporter Todd Neely. All right, we're going to get the very latest on this Waters of the U.S. rule, where we are now and what the the latest uh, is on this as far as the implementation of the new rule. Don Parrish with the American Farm Bureau Federation joins us next on AOA.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: Let's get the latest on the new WOTUS rule. Don Parrish, American Farm Bureau Federation Senior Director for Congressional Relations is with us. Don, looks like we've cleared another legal hurdle, right?
3: Yes, we have. And Mike, it is a huge hurdle at that.
1: So a federal judge in San Francisco denied a request to block implementation of the new WOTUS rule. So where do we stand now? You know what is really, I want to talk a little bit about what's
3: interesting about that court case in Northern California. Uh, The first thing is people need to know that the new navigable waters protection rule that is protective of water quality has gone into effect in every state and territory except Colorado. That's a really good thing. Also, with what is being litigated out there is something really unusual. Uh, before all of the litigation was over whether or not the federal government went too far and 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 read you know the term navigable out of the Clean Water Act. Did it exceed the authority that, that was granted Congress in the Constitution? All of the litigation that has gone before this has always looked at that overreach. This litigation in in the Northern District of California, as well as Colorado, is whether or not the federal government is required to have an expansive definition of waters of the US. I think we're gonna see some really, really interesting litigation here, but I will also say that this judge tipped his hand. He basically said that this administration dotted their I's, crossed their T's, and did a really, really good job explaining why they made the decisions they made. And I think that is something that this administration and the people that work at EPA can be very proud of.
1: So why is it not in effect for Colorado? Well, what is interesting
3: about the the case in Colorado is that the judge, even without a hearing, Uh, rule that the, that, that the rule did not comply with the Kennedy test that was, that came out of the Rapanos decision. And in fact, that judge actually used the dissenting justices rationale, the people that actually lost in the case before the Supreme Court, as a reason to stop the rule. Now, I want to be very specific. The reason that the judge stopped that rule is because Coloradans were going to have to fund a program uh, and develop and pay for their own program for wetlands protection in Colorado. So in other words, because the federal government changed their definition, it basically shifted responsibility from the federal government to the state for some waters. And we know that. We know that, that some waters are protected at the federal level, some waters are protected at the state level. Colorado is basically saying we want the federal government to regulate all water. And the judge in this case basically sided with them, at least preliminarily. I expect we're going to see that case appealed. And, you know, he's on pretty weak legal footing with the way that he he argued or, or decided this case. And I'm very hopeful that he's going to be overturned.
1: We're talking with Don Parrish with the American Farm Bureau Federation. So other than Colorado, we have the new waters of the U.S., rule in place, even though the legal battles will probably, as you said, continue. So what do landowners now in across the country, other than Colorado, need to know, keep in mind, when, uh, as far as what they can or cannot do on their land?
3: You know, Mike, that is a really good question, and I'm going to say, for the most part, landowners that Farm Bureau deals with, they need to turn to USDA. They need to turn to USDA to determine you know what how they have determined their land as to whether or not it's a water of the US that is the first question that they have to ask is do we have are we dealing with prior converted croplands are we dealing with non wetlands are we dealing with non waters if we are I'm under the impression right now that virtually all the questions are going to be answered in the core and EPA go away if USDA's made those determinations I'm going to see, I, I, I am hopeful we see more paper uh, clarifying that very soon, but I do think that is a big part of the implementation of this, is being able to rely on USDA's determinations. I will also say that one of the things that we're going to do at the national level, and we're going to try to do it in every state with every state Farm Bureau, is we're going to try to increase our communication with the Corps of Engineers. You know, the last thing we want is to have the implementation run off the tracks. When we've got a rule that we support, we want to increase that communication. We want to do so in ways that are protective of the environment, but yet provide the clarity that that our members need. So that's that's kind of the first and second thing that I would encourage farmers or ranchers to do. And for the most part, I I think we're well on the way of getting that done. There's a couple of other things we can talk about, but maybe you have another question before I, I dive into that.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say landowners have to be somewhat leery because they've been told so many different things. There have been so many mixed signals. Uh, Hopefully, though, this brings clarity to this issue and they can ask the question, can I do this on my land and get an answer, and that is the answer that will hold and it won't be changed by somebody else then.
3: Well, we're definitely moving in that direction. Uh, It is going to take a while for this, this new rule to be implemented. Uh, that is going to be critical. We're going to be watching that like a hawk, and we're definitely going to increase our communications. And we're going to do that in ways that I hope that farmers can understand. Okay. Uh, do it in ways that when we communicate with farmers, uh, that we're communicating with some sense of of consistency and reliability. That what we are able to communicate, and they know um, that they can take you know that they can they can take action based on on that knowledge. <laughs>
1: Now, what are some other things uh, you were going to mention that the landowners need to, to be aware of now?
3: You know, what we're going to watch very carefully, and again, we I think there's a lot of things moving through the process right now. Uh, one of them that we're going to look and pay really close attention to is Section 404F. Most people, F, most people say is synonymous with the farm exemptions. Uh, one of the things that we want to make sure happens, particularly across core districts, because core people are not farmers, they're not USDA, they're not used to dealing with farmers on the landscape, is that we're going to spend a lot of time and have gotten uh, a you know agreement out of the out of the politicals at both EPA and the core to make sure that the core districts consistently understand and apply the ag exemptions, even where. The Clean Water Act right, does apply, so that is something I am I am very much looking forward to, and it is something that I think uh, we're going to increase awareness out in farm country on this, and it is something that I hope brings a lot of a lot of clarity and understanding, transparency to farmers and ranchers.
1: I think back four years ago to the last presidential election, it now seems like an eternity ago. So much has changed in four years, but one of the top issues for farmers and for landowners going into that election was overturning the old WOTUS rule and getting a new one in place. Here, four years later, we finally have it.
3: Uh, You know, I'm very gratified. There was a lot of hard work put in by the grassroots members of a lot of agricultural organizations to make this happen uh this administration if they understood anything coming in four years ago was that this issue was something that was alive and a problem within the farm community and and i'm gratified that they heard those those discussions out in the countryside they came in and did something about it and um you know it, there's still going to be court cases, there's still going to be setbacks, but I would venture to say that the reasoning by this northern district of California is pretty solid. It is something that, that you, know, I, I, you know, I'm not going to hang my hat on it yet, hmm. but it is something that I believe that the agencies have done a good job. Uh, they produced a rule that is going to be protective of water quality, but yet it provide a heck of a lot more clarity. And is not as expansive as is the rule that was developed in 2015.
1: Well, I think you have to give credit where credit's due. I mean, President Trump, candidate Trump said this, he would do this and his administration would do it. And uh, they've done it. They've stuck with it. And it took a lot of sticking with it to get it done. And you said at the time it would be a long process, a long, uh, a long, tough battle. And it has been. I mean, uh, you, you've really got to be committed to doing something if you're going to stick with it for four years to get it changed, and it took that long to do it.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, you've got to give a lot of credit to people like the Administrator Wheeler at EPA, uh, Assistant Secretary James at the Army Corps. You know, they they drove the process. And, you know, there were a lot of staff that worked right alongside them at EPA. And, you know, staff that felt very you know feel like they needed to be very protectable water quality right. but they got it done and they got it done in a way that
1: we can support it. it's one of the issues that agriculture and epa were actually on the same side don thanks very much for the update absolutely mike thank you don Parrish with the american farm bureau federation now we're going to talk about an issue where agriculture and epa not on the same side we're going to talk about small refinery exemptions next on aoa
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know.
1: Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. EPA considering 52 small refinery exemption requests retroactive. This goes back a few years. Let's talk about that with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, thanks for joining us. I mean, I don't know how much more plain this needs to be to EPA when the court tells them how they've been doing it is wrong, and they're still now they're thinking about going back and still granting some that they'd already uh, not not granted. I mean, this they, instead of uh, taking the cue from the courts and fixing uh, their policy, it looks like they're doubling down on it or or making it even worse if they grant these.
0: Oh, Mike, you you said it well, It it really illustrates what side of this issue the leadership at the Environmental Protection Agency is on. On one side, we have the law and, as you noted, court decisions that should instruct the agency to dramatically reduce the number of these waivers they grant today and into the future, And instead of complying with that most recent court decision, which by the way came down in late January, and here we are already almost halfway through the year, instead of complying with that court directive, it appears as if EPA has been very busy helping these refiners think about ways to work around the law, to work around the court decision, and filing these 52 petitions or requests to have their obligations to blend ethanol and biodiesel waived under the renewable fuel standard. Some of these, Mike, dating back all the way to 2011. This, that's the first term of the Obama presidency. Many times these refiners weren't asking for waivers back then, but all of a sudden they've got some help at EPA uh, to, to try and sort of rewrite history. And so it's, it you know, it's, We've run out of superlatives to describe our hmm. our anger and frustration with this. We just need EPA to abide by the court ruling.
1: Hard to predict what's going to happen here, but if I was going to predict, based on what we've seen for the last few years from EPA on this issue, where they're almost trying to appease both sides, I could almost see them granting, I don't know how many of the 52, but some of them and, and denying some of them and saying, well, look, we didn't grant them all. So we're obviously looking at this on both sides. But we've been over this time and time again. That's not following the law, and it's also certainly not helping at all the situation of undermining the RFS, which is what they continue to do when they grant these. Yeah,
0: I think think your analysis of this is dead on, Mike. History has shown us that EPA tends to, to try and, in their mind, strike a balance whereby they, they upset some of the refiners, but maybe not all of them, and upset the renewable fuel sector and farmers, but not so much as to, you know, send us off the edge. And they think that they're doing right by that if everyone's sort of a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit unhappy. But as you noted, the law is very clear. Refiners are to blend ethanol and biodiesel. If they choose not to, they have to purchase a RIN, Renewable Identification Number, from another refiner who has blended ethanol and biodiesel. That's how they comply with the law of the land. These court you know, decisions have made it even more clear. These waivers that refiners have been getting shouldn't be doled out as often as they have been in the past. But I think you're right, we're gonna see a, a large swath of these 52 waivers get approved And EPA will probably find some way to try to accommodate the anger that they're going to get from our side. But that doesn't do anyone any good. They need to follow the law.
1: We're talking with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. In the last segment, I gave credit to President Trump and the administration for sticking with getting a new Waters of the U.S. rule in place. Uh, They got the other one, the old one, the controversial one repealed, got a new one in place. Um, Most of agriculture and many other groups are very happy with that. And so that that is indeed a positive and credit given there. But let's look at this issue. If they continue to grant these waivers, if they continue ignoring the rule of the law and the court ruling. Aren't we to the point? And and I know you and others in the industry are, are saying this now. And I've brought this question up for some time. At some point, you have to say, President Trump, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you letting your EPA do this?
0: That's precisely right. And for anyone, if any of your listeners are under the impression that the the President is not aware of the actions that EPA is taking, both the actions that that benefit rural America, but also those actions that harm rural America. You're, you're sadly mistaken. The president is, and his leadership circle are well briefed on all of these activities. In some cases, they direct these activities, and I think rural America has to look in the mirror and, and decide: Are you are you satisfied with you know a rewrite of WOTUS and some regulatory red tape eliminated when it comes to business activities on one side and with all of the damage that's been done to the economy of rural America through the mismanagement of the renewable fuel standard. And that's an, that's a question folks are going to have to answer as we inch closer and closer to the November election.
1: And I just want to say because so many people look at everything through a political lens and they're looking for some reason to be upset that you're not in for their candidate or party or for the other. I'm, I'm just saying this is... And I'm not I'm not looking at this politically because the Obama administration's EPA didn't do any real favors on a lot of these issues as well. Where They missed deadlines and did a lot of things that didn't support the RFS. So both parties have been in power and these kind of things have been going on. So I, I, I take that part out of it. Uh, but you have to look at the political ramifications in an election year like this. And I just wonder, again, getting back to trade offs and trying to appease both sides, if the administration looks at it well, we've you know, agriculture's getting CFAP you know, CFAP money and they got M F P payments, that should offset whatever they would lose on the biofuel side, so we consider that to be a, you know, kind of a wash or even a net gain in their in their eyes. I, I don't know if that they're looking at it that way, but I can't help but wonder. That's
0: exactly the way they're looking at it. That's the political calculus is that if we make these trade aid payments, if we're making sure that we're uh, reaching out with these COVID aid payments, um, that should diminish some of the anger that we receive from rural America if we continue to mismanage the RFS. And until and unless there is genuine grassroots anger about the abuse of the renewable fuel standard, I think we're gonna see this activity continue and you're, you're absolutely right, you and I talked dozens of times when uh, it was President Obama's EPA that was mismanaging the RFS. And so this isn't new. Um, unfortunately, it's been happening under both Democratic and Republican administrations. I guess the point is, if we don't speak up in rural America, if we don't stand up for ourselves, this is going to continue.
1: Yeah, I think that that is that that's exactly the point, because we've seen year after year the RFS be undermined, eroded uh, by the granting of these waivers and other actions that EPA has taken. I I just don't understand how when you got the law of the land and a court upholds the law of the land and yet it's still not administered. uh, Well, but we live in some. in some times where a lot of things are happening, I don't understand. So, where do you think we go from here, Brian? I mean, if any of these are granted, what's the next step for the uh, the biofuels industry?
0: Well, because this gets to the heart of that court decision that we won back in January that I mentioned at the beginning of our segment. I think a, the American Coalition for Ethanol Renewable Fuels Association, corn growers, and others that brought that lawsuit are going to have an ability to go back to the 10th circuit and try to get EPA to comply with that court ruling from January 1. Um, two, I think we're gonna see something out of EPA in the next month or so. I think very soon we'll see EPA come out with their proposal for the 2021 mm-hmm. renewable volume obligations. They may come out and try to comply with that 2017 court order to restore 500 million gallons to the RFS to So I think this summer is going to be really active, very busy in terms of news coming out of EPA. And for our part, we're going to continue to apply political pressure on them to deny these 52 retroactive waivers, um, but also reserve the right to to go back to the court um, to try to get our remedy fixed uh, there.
1: Yeah, I can see the headlines coming, EPA restoring lost gallons, but then... That'll be the headline, and that's what the talking points will be. But the part that won't get talked about as much is the further granting of these refineries still undermining. So you don't really get the gain that uh, you, it sounds like you're getting. I think that's right. I mean, I,
0: between now and the 4th of July, I wouldn't be surprised if if EPA says, we're going to comply with that 2017 lawsuit under the Obama administration. And instead of restoring 500 million gallons, we'll We'll do half of that. Um, But then on the same day, they're going to approve probably half or more of these 52 Mm -hmm. exemptions and just kind of call it a wash. And that's where it goes back to the conversation you and I were having. How do rural Americans respond to that? Are they okay with it or do they get upset and make it clear through their elected leaders that they're upset? And I think that's, you
1: know, that's the question. And we'll, we'll get the answers later this year. Brian, thanks a lot. Always appreciate it. Good to talk with you. Take care. Thanks so much, Mike. You too. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. All right. Up next, we're going to talk with the president and CEO of the Farm Credit Council about a program to help farmers deal with stress. That's next on AOA.
0: information America's farmers and ranchers need to know Adams on
1: agriculture Now back to Mike Adams Well even in the best of times agriculture is a very stressful uh occupation and and way of life that just goes with the with the uh you know the way of doing things cuz you're dealing with weather you're dealing with things out of your control um, markets, certainly, impacted by different things. Uh, You've got uh, politics, you've got trade wars, you have things like that. And then, of course, you have not only weather, but you have pests and, you know, insects and weeds. There's just just a long list of uh, things. that It's a constant battle. So there's always going to be stress. But what we've seen the last few years in agriculture is uh, an extra amount of stress. Then you throw in a, a, a pandemic on top of that. So these are extremely stressful times in agriculture. Well, a number of groups are coming together to help uh, try to help uh, those on the farm to get some uh, assistance there to deal with stress. We talk a lot about, you know, assistance with marketing or agronomic issues, or whatever, but these issues are equally as important maybe maybe even more so how you deal with stress joining us now is the president and ceo of the farm credit council Todd Van who's Todd thank you for joining us tell us about this uh, program this uh, project you've you and some other groups have put together to help farmers deal with stress
4: well mike thanks for having me on uh, yeah we we've been working as you said farming is stressful even in the best of times and and lately we hadn't had all that best of times and and especially when you put the the supply chain disruptions and so forth that have hit us on top of all the other things due to this COVID pandemic, we're seeing stress rising out in the countryside. You know, farm credit uh, loan officers, uh, others throughout the country report rising stress levels amongst customers, amongst farmers, farm families. And so today we in in the National uh, Farmers Union, the American Farm Bureau Federation, all in cooperative with uh, Cooperative Extension, announced a free online farm stress management training program that's designed to, to help farmers identify signs of stress and, and, and teach uh, coping mechanisms, techniques to handle that stress, and then when they might want to think about reaching out for some help.
1: All right. How, how do they find this assistance? Where do they go? You know,
4: there's, uh, we, we've made it available on our website. Um, it is www.farmcredit.com. That homepage there will have a link to the training. Uh, the American Farm Bureau Federation, uh, AFBF.org, also has that on their homepage. So farmers and farm families can reach out either way there, and they can get access to that free private online training.
1: And what will they find there?
4: Well, you know, this is a a very well thought out. It was designed by Cooperative Extension at Michigan State University and University of Illinois. They've had other universities partnering in it. And it's designed to help, it's in three units. The first unit is how to manage stress. What you do, how to identify signs and symptoms of stress. Here's strategies for managing stress in healthy ways. um, Potential ripple effects of stress uh, in your family, and then how to communicate about that, how to communicate with each other, how to tell people about stress, how to recognize it in people you're working with. Uh, and then finally, the last section of this is is, is very serious suicide awareness and how to recognize when that stress level uh, starts to exhibit signs that are moving into a much more serious situation, how to recognize when to provide additional assistance, when to to really start to connect people with professional assistance and build confidence and knowledge to be able to communicate that way.
1: This is something we all have to take seriously. We have to be uh, more observant, more aware of uh, changes in behavior of people around us that we're close to. And because we know that people are often reluctant or hesitant to admit they have They're dealing with an issue like stress, and they don't want anyone else to know, uh, but someone else might be able to see that there's something going on there. So uh, this is something we all need to be more aware of.
4: Well, Mike, you put your finger right on it. One of the the real challenges in rural communities especially is lack of access to mental health care. It just doesn't really exist in a lot of rural communities, and so – as you say, it, it really is kind of up to all of us who are out there living and working in rural communities to, to watch out and, and be helpful to people. You know, when when you, when you see somebody struggling, talk to them about it, see if you can help. You know, reducing this stigma, you know, everybody needs some help sometimes, and, and rural people tend to be pretty independent, farmers especially. Uh, you know, they've, they've been taught to, to rely on themselves, but there are times when they need to reach out and we need to recognize that and, and encourage that kind of behavior.
1: And that's why I think programs like this, resources like this are so important because, well, hopefully we all will be more aware and more supportive. And when we do that, though, I think we feel inadequate where we don't know what else to do. And, and even though just right. listening and talking to someone can be very important, but having, uh, you know, somewhere to go to direct them to and say, here's somewhere where you can get help from experts and professionals in, in this area. I think that's that's a, a big step that we can take here to guide them to something like this.
4: That, that, that's right, Mike. I mean, and, and this training helps people recognize, right? We, we all understand the stress. I mean, you talked about it in your opening here that is just a fact of life for farmers and, and and that's an everyday management exercise and this will give people the techniques to try to manage that stress but as you say recognizing when that stress level has crossed a threshold where you're going to need some help how to recognize that in your friends and family and how to get them the resources they need to help
1: again real quick where can they uh, go online to get this help the best place to go, easiest place,
4: is, is the farmcredit.com homepage, www.farmcredit.com. It's a link that will tra- take you to free, private, confidential online training.
1: It's very important very helpful during these very, very stressful times. Todd, thank you for being with us, and thank you for uh, this great project.
4: You bet, Mike. Thanks.
1: Todd Van Hoos, president and CEO of the Farm credit council that wraps it up for today thank you for joining us be safe everyone you're listening to AOA hope you'll join us again tomorrow